large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Playwright, performer, and educator Alvin Eng has written a memoir, Our Laundry, Our Town, My Chinese-American Life from Flushing to the Downtown Stage and Beyond. In it, he tells the story of growing up as a first-generation Chinese-American in Flushing, Queens in the 1970s in one of the few immigrant Chinese families in that neighborhood at that time. It's published by the Empire State Editions imprint of Fordham University Press and brings to our show now Alvin Eng, whose plays and performances have appeared off-Broadway throughout the United States, in Paris, Hong Kong, and Guangzhou, China. Welcome. Le Ho Ma. Hello, Leonard. Hey, good to hear you again. So um, I haven't spoken to you since the 20th century. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's good to talk to you again. Now, uh, I've always been fascinated by Flushing. It became New York City's second Chinatown in the mid in the, the 1980s, long after the one in downtown Manhattan had become a famous place. Wasn't it settled mostly at that time by newly arrived Mandarin speakers because the Manhattan Chinatown was mostly Cantonese? I absolutely, and it came about where um, I guess after in '79 they uh, they. They widened the quota for Asian immigration. Like no, no, these are all like uh, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, which is still like its own um, sovereignty. Then they would share the quote unquote China quota, but then that changed, and then the, the immigration really came from a lot of Taiwanese. And, and yes, and uh, overnight, uh, Flushing became uh, the second Chinatown, and very much a Mandarin-speaking enclave, which was, of course. Uh not what your family was all about. Your 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 fam- your parents were from uh, Toisen, a village in Canton. So your your were your parents unlike the new arrivals in Flushing who spoke Mandarin and not Cantonese? Oh, very much unlike so. And uh, I always make an analogy: the the Toisenese, we uh, established like the Chinatowns and all the uh, working class you know Chinese neighborhoods in throughout North America in, in the late nineteenth and most of the twentieth century. We were almost like the Sicilians. You know, we sort of we were from the south in our countries, and we uh, we ran our areas according to our, our own. Uh, codes, you could say. And um, so that was very much in why that became the pipeline was for the majority of Chinese immigration. I'm not sure, but it, it was. And, uh, and it really had a hold on until about the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, uh, such an influx of uh, Mandarin came in. And and uh, what little twice on Cantonese I speak, I would say it's like a, it's like Creole French, a tiny dialect of the uh, Cantonese dialect. Well, and, uh, I- but even uh, these two things, they're both Chinese, Mandarin and Cantonese, but quite different, almost distinctly different languages. Uh, I welcome you to the show with Le Ho Ma, but mm-hmm. hello in Mandarin is quite different. Ni hao. Right, right. Not even close. So are they written similarly? Yes, I know. As I used to say in the 70s, it blew my mind when the first time I went to China with my mother, where throughout the country, she could uh, communicate with everyone through the written Chinese language, mm-hmm. but not through the spoken. Um, I'm still trying to process that uh, process. Well, Flushing was dubbed the People's Republic of Flushing. Why Flushing? <laughs> Uh, years ago, I was writing, actually during Tiananmen Square, I was writing an article for The Voice about the um, the rock singer who's sort of like the, the voice of the uh, the Tiananmen Square uprising, Sui Jin. And I remember I, I, I was trying, remember this is before the internet and everything, and I was trying to get information on him. And I was trying to, um, I was trying to give my uh, my mailing address, my where I was to uh, someone in, in China. And like uh, New York City did not ring a bell. New York, uh, and then finally said, I'm from Flushing. And he goes, Ooh. oh, Flushing. Flushing. <laughs> and I saw, I was almost like, why didn't you say so? so that really, <laughs> I was amazed. I still am amazed. 
uh, but at that time, as I said, there weren't many other Chinese residents in the area. How old were you when you became aware of the hostility many people had for people from China? Oh, very young, because uh, sadly, uh, at least maybe once a month, people would open our, you know, my, my parents had a Chinese hand laundry. Uh, for any flushing listeners, we were on Union Street. And um, and at least once a month, people would open the door and really scream this awful stuff like, you know, go home where you're from. You know, hey, Charlie, you speak English. And so um, I was aware of that from a very early age. And that seemed to die down for a while. But we're seeing uh, a fair amount of... Uh, of, of uh, negative activity in regard to Chinese people now. Uh, people Absolutely. are being beaten up, uh, beaten on the street. Why do you think that is? Well, a lot, a lot of it was uh, was started with um, like a, they, the scapegoating with COVID. That was, you could mm-hmm. start right there. Like a, a lot of that started with that, and um, and and just we became the, the face of it again. It's and it's funny you bring that up, but it, it's like full circle. But at least back then, I, they would. It would be a lot of verbal abuse, but they didn't cross the line to physical attacks, at least not with me. I'm sure it's, it's always happened. But I've, I've always been a very tall person, so maybe that's helped. But, uh, mm-hmm. So a lot of it started with just that. And then we just became other. We, we became just the um, just the scapegoated for, the, for, the, for COVID. Hadn't your parents survived Japan's occupation of China, the Chinese Revolution as well? How were they able to come to the United States? No, they they came in. They, they, they um, well, the War Brides Act changed everything. My father got over like it was a, it was a common thing where so many people came in as a uh, paper sons and paper daughters, where they uh, they made arrangements to get papers to get in that um, that were um, different identities. But then once they came here, they got legalized and became citizens. So that's how they were able to circumvent what was the first and God help us the last American law that made it illegal for one race of people to become citizens here, and that's of course the Chinese Exclusion Act. And then there was the enactment of the Immigration Nationality Act in 1965, which made it possible for Chinese immigrants to move to the United States after many years of of exclusion. Yes. Um, But what about becoming citizens? Your parents never became citizens. Well, they did become citizens. Yes, they did. Oh, they did, finally? They did, yes, yes. Remember my mother, it's just like in the movie uh, Dim Sum, Wayne Wong's uh, second feature film. I I remember her and her uh, her friends cramming for their tests. They they would say things like, yes, Georgie Washington and stuff. They would would, remember them cramming for their, uh, their, their exam. Still, they when they were illegal immigrants, they still owned a succession of laundries throughout the metropolitan area. The one that you grew up in was the, their third. Yes, they uh, and the first one was in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, and then one on uh, East Eighty Sixth Street, and then uh, in, in Flushing, in, in Queens, and um, yeah, so they, they they did that. There was there was had to be a support system from the old villages because um, uh, it's in the book too. My, my parents had an arranged marriage. They were you know my mm-hmm. my my father was all of sixteen. My mother was all of fourteen, and then for ten years my uh, the, the, my fa- well before that my father came over and started working in uh, New York's Chinatown restaurants. And uh, uh, what year was that? That was that was early on, like like probably in the thirties. He came mm-hmm. over very early on, and uh, and. Just by the the little money he would make here, by our village standards, he became a rich man. And he went back to the village. A marriage was arranged, and then he came back to New York City. And then my mother didn't hear from him for 10 years. But uh, through other village contacts, she knew where he where he was and essentially arranged for a, another paper husband to, to come to the States. And she uh, found him. And how common were arranged marriages of the sort that your parents had? 
Oh, it was very common. It was, it was, it was that was the way it was done then too. And, and how that um, impacted me, like, cause you know, New York, I grew up in New York City in the seventies and everything was changing. You know, things were, were, were bursting open, but and yet every night I'd go home to this household that was not only rooted in, in a different culture, being you know, a Chinese immigrant parents, but because I had an arranged marriage, I felt like I was in a, in a family household of a different century. So, but it was so common, and that was the main way that matches uh, took place. Although they had five children, you write that the the marriage was difficult and strained. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And as you know, when you, when you talk to family members, you're just people you've known for a long time. You know, we, we go through the same things, but we can have obviously very different interpretations of what those experiences were. And um, after after going through everything they went through uh, at that time, you know, they, they got their laundry at the end of the McCarthy era and the end of uh, all the Red Scare tactics and everything. I think they were very tired with me. So for better and for worse, I, I had a lot of freedom. So um, and because it's quite a stand is uh, my oldest I'm the youngest of five, and uh, the oldest is 15 years old. So some ways, the family was like two families. The siblings, one, two, and three, were born very quick succession, like in the, in the, um, in the late 40s, early 50s. and then um, They and were then already they, grown they, up when you were born in 1962. Yes, exactly. So they, they were almost like, um, almost like uncles and aunts, too, in some mm-hmm. ways. So, but you were closer to the, the, the fourth one, your, the brother who was uh, closer in age to you. Absolutely, yeah. my brother Harmony. We're very close. We are, and it, it, it be, we it became very difficult in the laundry between uh, the outside world. You know, it's just a reeking, uh, you know, just putting a lot of pressure on my parents, and my parents just having a really awful time. And we really bonded over our love of rock and roll, and that really saved us at that time. Your father spoke English, but your mother, whom you call the Empress Mother, never yes. learned to speak English. Didn't that make things difficult for her? Yes it, yes, it did. But in some ways, uh, I write about this, too, where it did make it difficult. But in some ways, it, it, I think in the long run, it helped her keep her, her core being together. Like it was almost like protected, insulated. And she always had family to, to help with that. And, um, and I, speak, I, I regret it now, but I, I rebelled. I, respe- I refused to learn to speak Chinese. And, um, but somehow all those years that I took care of the Empress Mother in her later life. I speak very little Toysanese, and she speaks very little English, but somehow we communicated all those years. Well, but your father could speak to you in English. You say you were one of the neighborhood's few Chinese citizens who could not speak fluent Chinese. Uh, that was later on, like after the change had started to come, like when, uh, when a lot of the immigrants started coming to Flushing. Like. You say that in some ways your parents' arranged marriage was the ultimate tragic opera. <laughs> In what ways? Yes, uh, in, in that um, they had this, they created this great, almost like it was a tragic on the emotional side. Let's say on, on the on the on the emotional and the intangible side. I feel like, uh, at least in my time, I, I never saw them do anything even remotely affectionate for each other. But yet, and yet, that five kids. Yes, I know, and um, and and again, by the time I was I was uh, adolescent, my my oldest brother, my next oldest brother, he's five years older than me, so he was into his his teenage years, so he wasn't around much. You know, teenagers are always uh, scarce, and um, and so it really became, I felt like an only child for a lot of that time, and um, yes, yeah, so so now it's tragic. I never saw them share anything like like emotionally or happy, but yet they they built this. They ran this mom and pop business successfully for so many years, and, and they raised five kids. So, but I felt it's very tragic because I, I never saw any. There had to be a. I felt like it was a total commitment to the family, but yet almost disdain for each other. So that, that's why I meant it was a tra- tragic opera. Thank you for noting that. Yes. 
Well, the, the laundry was, as you say, a business success. So was their marriage, well, their marriage sounds to me very much like a business arrangement. I guess in some ways it was. I guess the arrangement was uh, to create and, uh, and sustain this family. And they did that uh, amazingly. They did that great, but I, I just felt it was always uh, it was such a sadness around them. At least when I when I was growing up, and in researching the book, I, I ran into some friends, particularly some cousins. Who it's great to get a different viewpoint. Like they were close enough to be in the family, but you're out, outside enough to give you a different view. And, and they told me, um, you're, you're, they said, "Oh yeah." I had uh, cousins that grew up in, uh, in Chinatown, and for them at that time in the 60s and 70s, going to Flushing to them was like going to the country. Mm. It was like such an escape for them. And uh, they told me that, that my father would host these parties and be the life of the party. He dressed like Sinatra and played those records. I was like, <laughs> he did? I never met that guy. Well, I actually lived in the Manhattan Chinatown for 25 years, mm-hmm. but... Um, Friends would say, friends in the know would say, if you want to have the real food, the the authentic Chinese food, we have to go to Flushing. And then mm-hmm. later it became Brooklyn, the, right. the Chinatown in Brooklyn. Mm. No, even then, because you lived there like in the 80s and 90s, I believe. Right? So even then they said to go to Flushing for the mm-hmm. food. Well, uh, huh, that's, that's interesting. That's um. I've always felt that there was a, the, the culinary level in New York's Chinatown was always good. I mean, it's much better. Actually, it's much better now than it used to be. But Flushing, it really became the hub of, of so much uh, of, of, of the Chinese um, in America. Mm-hmm. Your parents ran the laundry was called Fujin Hand Laundry. Where did that name come from? Oh, Fujin Chin. Yeah, that was that was his uh, that was his identity. That was the name on, on his uh, his identification papers. So it became the the Fujin Chin Chinese Hand Laundry and. Uh, mm-hmm. We were all born chins, and then actually, which said in '65, the um, Family Reunification Act. Uh, then he, our family, legally changed our name. Again, um, my mother was a, was, a, was an actual chin. That's her ancestral name. But my father was always an Ang. But yet he came on, into this country as Fu Jie Chin, and then in '65 to bring his mother over, my my grandmother, uh, he changed the family name back to Ang. And uh, we became Angs. And I wasn't in school yet, but my brother Herman, who was in school, said that was a very confusing time. Like his, um, all his clients saying, wait, last week you were Herman Chin. Now you're Herman <laughs> Ang. What the, you know, so. Um, Is it true that you were named after Alvin the Chipmunk? <laughs> absolutely true. Yes. Uh, by my brother Herman, like, and even write the book, I say it would be great symmetry to say that he was named after Herman Munster, but he was named actually after the, um, remember that one, the single panel uh, cartoon character, Herman? That was an old uh, mm-hmm. show. And um, somehow my siblings, one through one through three, thought it was funny. They, they called him that. And, and um, my mother did like it phonetically. They were just kidding around. So because he, he got named that way, they let him name me. And I was, and his favorite TV character was uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks. So I say I'm always grateful that his favorite shows weren't uh, Captain Kangaroo or Leave it to Beaver or something like that. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Alvin Eng, whose latest work is a memoir called Our Laundry, Our Town, My Chinese-American Life from Flushing to the Downtown Stage and Beyond. It is published by Fordham University Press under its Empire State Editions imprint. Um, You discuss, in fact, throughout this book, you discuss parallels between the characters in Thornton Wilder's Our Town 
and and your laundry. Um, is why? How did Our Town become such an important work for you throughout your life? Oh, it, it just um, I, I the first time I saw it was uh, back in the eighties when uh, Spalding Gray was the stage manager, and uh, that got raked under the coals because he was he was a very eighties stage manager. Like he would say things like uh, "Grover's Corner, it's a nice town, don't you think?" and like roll his eyes, and people were going, "How can he do this sacrilege?" But uh, it made a, a big impact on me then. But then. When the Empress Mother, my second parent, passed in 2002, um, some reason I, when I, I moved from Flushing to Jersey City, and it, it's in the book, it's true, but somehow that book just popped out in the top of my books, and I read it again, and after losing, at least for me, after losing both parents, the play became profound to me. It just had a profound impact on me, and, um, and I started to write a, um, a solo show called The Last Emperor of Flushing, and um, inspired by our town but then in researching it what really brought things full circle like quote-unquote like on stage and off stage where uh i didn't know that our town uh was influenced by chinese opera by peking opera and cantonese opera there's a there's a great collection of letters between uh, thornton star excuse me thornton wilder and gertrude stein and i love that she calls him thorny that's only she can dear thorny and um mm-hmm. And he says in, in one of his letters, Dear Gertrude, for my next play, I'm stealing all the ideas from the third part of The Making of Americans, as well as the concept of the property manager from Chinese opera. And so I realized, why God, the uh, stage manager in our town is based on Chinese opera because uh, Thornton Wilder's father was consul general to Hong Kong and Shanghai. So he spent a lot of his childhood in China. And that to me, that, you know, we're always looking at ways to, you know, being growing up when I did, we never felt completely American, but yet seeing how this Americana work is rooted in some ways, and as a, as a lot of experimental theater in a lot of uh, Chinese theater and Asian theater, it really struck something in me. And then um, my wife and I, who's also a theater artist, we, uh, we got to do a Fulbright residency at City University of Hong Kong, where we mm-hmm. we first studied our town with uh, City University of Hong Kong students, who are mainly Chinese, and then, uh, and then they wrote and performed their own plays in response to it. And that really... Uh, was uh, strong with me. And then through this residency, I got to perform The Last Emperor of Flushing that was inspired by our town in in Guangzhou, in Guangdong, not quite in uh, Choisan, but it's almost like it was a Manhattan, not quite Flushing. So it just be, learning just the, the, the power of the play itself and then learning about its, uh, its influence just came to be such a strong influence. That, that's why the book is called Our Laundry, Our Town. And just about a range of marriages, the, uh, the Hong Kong students, this is back in 2011, when they finished reading Our Town, they asked me, uh, in New England, are all these families, are they arranged marriages as well? Mm-hmm. Well, I was surprised to learn that uh, Wilder had uh, lived in China. That That isn't something that is generally written about. Um, uh, but it, it now it makes a lot of sense. Uh, on the other hand, um, you, you, uh, you say that you were at the... Um, uh, you were at the City College of, of uh, where? where? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm of you had a you had a, a, a residency, a uh, uh, Fulbright, right? A Fulbright device, yes, Fulbright, oral exactly. history residency. Yes, at the uh, City University of Hong Kong. Yes. Now you were teaching it in English. Does everybody? Did everybody there know English? Oh yes, you know um, uh, Hong Kong at that point is, is like us, a former British colony, and uh, and by the twenty first century, apparently, definitely in Hong Kong, apparently all throughout most of China, most of uh, college education is taught in English. I guess um, huh. 
it's it's not a convenient uh, term, but I guess English is a, the, the lingua franca of, of a higher education for a lot of it. So so much of them, um, yes. And it, it was interesting to see how all their slang in Hong Kong was all uh, like British slang. Like I remember trying to ask someone who didn't even speak uh, well, that much English. Like, elevator didn't ring a bell. I was trying to ask him, and then said, uh, "It had to be a lift." Exactly, lift. Oh yeah, I I, I felt like again flushing. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Like yeah, so so um, all the education was in English, and, and uh, they all had a. They all had uh, British inflections, too, still in Hong Kong. Well, that must have made it a little easier for your wife, Wendy Westall, who uh, uh, has had a, an important history in theater. She, how involved was she in it? Oh, we were we were the we were collaborators. Uh, we we we, uh, we 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 co-created this uh, this residency, this workshop because uh, she's a uh, her her company shared forms. They were one of the resident theater companies with the Worcester Group back in the eighties when um back when um Tribeca was still a dangerous place to be, and so she comes from more of the. Uh, the, the movement of ice theater side, and I'm more of the, the playwright performer. And now I call myself an, an acoustic punk rock on tour. But so we came together on these two things. So we, we, you know, she knew about the history of our town, was studying it, and then we created this uh, this curriculum together. And then we we uh, we applied and we were accepted. And then we taught it at uh, City University of Hong Kong. And um, she really, I worked with her much more on the writing and 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 the um, and the dramaturgy. But she was essential to the staging and the movement. And uh, it was amazing. We learned that halfway through the, our residency, a lot of these students. Students had never even seen a play or a musical, but uh, we just like we found a group that loved to dance. So they they were you know they they jumped through every movement hoop that Wendy could arrange for them. So they were incredible. So was that trip uh, the time when you were also able to visit the village of Toisan, where your father had grown up? Right. No, those are two different trips. The residency was in uh, in uh, 2011, and the trip to Toisan was in, in 2007. And it also came about too, where uh, we Wendy and I had been together since '99. And uh, and then when her parent, her mother passed, interesting. Her and her mother was in in um, the original musical, the uh, the labor musical, uh, Pins and Needles. Mm-hmm. So uh, so and um and she got to do a, a, a command performance for her her heroine uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. And uh, she, she, when she passed in 2007, that that to me was the impetus to say, okay, we, we need to get married. We, I really want to get married now. And part of our seeking just blessing with, with our parents going was we, we finally made that pilgrimage back to Toisan to, to find ourselves. And, um, and that was fascinating. Thank God there's still hole in the wall travel agencies in Chinatown. Like, uh, I think Toisan is still not on the, uh, even though there's so much travel tourism, well, there was to China, I guess, until recently, but, uh, even then, it was hard to find uh, people that would get you to Toisan and get you to the village. And um, and I was very lucky to find the, the Ang Family Association because one, one of the um, connotations of Ang is five. They were at Five Mott Street. And um, they told me, uh, go, go to this place. You can have use this use this map and just stay at this hotel. You could hire a driver. And this is approximately where your father's village is. So we, had, we brought all those maps with us, and it worked out. In a, in a classroom in... I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Is it Guilin? Oh, Gu- Guilin. Guilin. Didn't uh, students ask you if there was a war between China and the United States, who would you fight for? Absolutely. And this is, that was my first trip to China with mm-hmm. the Empress Mother. Were they suspicious of you because uh, you didn't speak much Chinese? Exactly. I, like, uh, I, was, I was also, I don't know how they arranged, but I'm so glad they did. We were part of a, a small tour group of North Americans. And my mother and I, the Empress Mother and I were the only... Uh, non-Caucasian in the group. And somehow on a rainy day, uh, their plan B indoor activity was to visit um, an English language class of what we, what he would be essentially high school students. And um, 
I could feel the vibe. The second I walked in, like they didn't know what to make of me. And then, and then, uh, like one, and even before that, one the tallest kid wanted to say uh, he wanted to arm wrestle me. I was like, this is crazy. And then, <laughs> and then finally I said, okay, if there was a war between China and the U.S., who would you fight for? Mm. And I tried, tried to say I'd move to Canada, but that that joke didn't quite <laughs> translate. They wouldn't understand what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that, that really bothered how, and uh, and it's true that first trip to China was amazing. Like it was still, still a lot of the airports and even some of the planes still like of the Soviet model. And um, and one time, the t- it is true that a tour guide is like the most happy-go-lucky guy when everyone was around. When uh, there was no other tourists around, he pulled me aside and said, tell me, does this Triple K organization really exist? I was like, oh my God, I didn't know what to say at first. <laughs> Would you say that this book is about living within two cultures, neither of which fully accepts you, but at the same time defines you? Absolutely, and, and learning how to how to deal with that. I, I think um, through through, I think by accepting your, your your personal and cultural history and and learning to tell your stories, it makes you hopefully turn that page. Because sometimes you know, growing up, no matter what you are, like in a very diverse and very challenging city like New York, and then in a, the Asian American community is also very big and very diverse. You can sometimes feel like there's there's no place for you, and and, and you think maybe wow, am I none of the above? But I think by learning to really um, accept these you know personal and the cultural histories and hopefully attached to the larger narrative of our times. And it's like, no, I am all the above. I'm not none of the above. So absolutely, it's dealing with that. And I've talked about earlier in the book, we talked about, I guess now it's called Unhouse, but I felt like homelessness growing up was more of a spiritual and, and, and a psychological state than a physical state. And, and, I was, and I'm, I'm processing that throughout this book and throughout this process. Well, the way you look defines you in the eyes of the people who meet you all the time. Uh, Somebody could have come to this country yesterday and would just pass, whereas you will always look Asian. No, absolutely. And we, and we talked about that, uh, of all things, in, in graduate school. Like, I went to NYU's uh, graduate musical theater writing program. And some of my classmates, you know, were, uh, were, were gay and lesbian. And they, they talked about how they had the, the choice, really, almost like uh, to project, you know, who what they wanted to be. Where they said, but with you, you're sort of just like, outed just by your, your face. You're outed mm-hmm. by the way you look. You, you cannot, you have to deal with it. They could, like, just choose different ways to to, to do that. And, um, no, and so... I've always been dealing with that, and and I think luckily having these cultural references is always and and not just references, but a whole a whole cultural dialogue really helped on, on that end. Well, how much do you think your personal experiences reveal about our current global situation in regard to representation, identity, and social and racial justice? Right. No, it's interesting that we're, we're going through a obviously going through a, a global reckoning on all that right now, and I'd like to think that. In a lot of this book, and my, my, we look at some of the uh, the precedent that was set for these things, and they realize um, how much it is. We always feel like, a, as as a kid, I remember thinking, "God, how come my parents don't socialize with people? Why why they they just only talk to other uh, Chinese laundry owner families and other just other relatives?" And I realized at first I thought, "Are they arrogant? Are they above it all? They don't want to socialize with non Chinese?" But then the way they came in, you know, still with the with the shadow of the, of, of at that point, being the face of the enemy of war, the past three wars, going back, it's like, you know, Korea, Japan, and um, and Vietnam, and say, well, we are the face of the enemy, and then there was this Chinese Exclusion Act. We have to live hmm. an under-the-radar existence. And so that became, that, those social mores, even, I guess, even more powerfully, non-verbally, just 
but see the way they would behave and uh, not behave, not partake in any of the community things. That really made me feel very different. That's why then finding the, the Asian American arts and activism community has uh, really helped really find that. And also, uh, really, the rock and roll world, and even before that, as a teenager, was, as a late 70s teen, the punk rock was, world was everything. And obviously, all outsiders drift to these places. And then you, I think, almost like, like a past this prelude to where we are now, back then, they would say, okay, I, in the punk rock circles first, and then the Asian American activism circles say, okay, I'm not going to hide my otherness now. I'm going to shout my otherness to the, to the rooftops, and I'm going to just embrace it and become me. And that, that goes a long way. And I think where we are now, I think we're going through that, I think even more, maybe even more on an institutional level. Because I, I, I write about this in the book, too. I feel like in some ways now, what... It's similar, it feels similar to what, what um, late Mayor Dinkins called the gorgeous mosaic era here in New York City. We really tried to embrace different cultures and that was rooted in what was then multiculturalism. But I think uh, it was very much in the arts as it is now, but I think now it's even happening more on an, on an institutional level, not just on an individual level. Well, in this book, you explore issues of identity, race, and societal expectations. Do you think those are issues for most non-white immigrant families? I think now we we because we I think now after especially the last few years like people I think it applies to all of us because we're thinking where how do we have this dialogue and uh, I always say dialogue not diatribe and I think about that too like like just in, coming from where we are in the theater I think as a playwright it's easier to navigate because I think you could say I'm not trying to be this thing I'm, I want to have a uh, a dialogue with this culture with this character and I, I of course you want authentic representation but um it goes both ways like like i i, I want authenticity but i want the ability to be, to be able to explore like as a, as a chinese american i don't don't be told you have to stay in your lane you only should write about chinese american characters or chinese american themes so i think we're still navigating how to do that respectfully and uh, and also just uh, just respectfully navigate having a dialogue between cultures but i think that's essential do you think it would have been different if you'd been growing up in another city in this country? I'd, I, I'd assume that Los Angeles or San Francisco might have been kind of similar. But what about if you had been in in a southern city or in uh, Columbus, Ohio? Right. Um, I think it would have been different. I think I think, I think it would have been different. And I, I just I did a workshop at Otterbein University, which was near Columbus, Ohio. And uh, they didn't have any Asian American students in their uh, in in their in their programs. Like, oh wow! So we did a workshop on my play Three Trees, which is uh, about uh, Alberto Giacometti's obsession with this uh, with the with the Japanese philosopher Isaku Yanaihara. And my thing was like, I was saying, well, how can I do this in a way where where my friends wouldn't want to protest me? But I, I thought. Uh, the play looks at how Giacometti has trouble seeing him and capturing him. So I, we just did it. So every time Giacometti looked up, a different student actor was playing uh, Yanaihara. And that was a way to deal with that. So I think so. And it's funny you mentioned that on, on the West Coast, especially in San Francisco, there was so much of Asian American culture. The first Asian American studies program was founded there. A lot of West Coast uh, Asian Americans and Chinese Americans in particular, they had a little, they felt they had a little more secure grounding than us on the East Coast. So yes, I think... Uh, you know, like uh, we all we're all products of our time and our place, and I think New York so much influenced me. And and, and I, I think at the at the end of the day, there's so many categories. But I like the, the, this is a real New York City book as well. 
You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Opera Tommy, and we'll get to why I played that in a little while. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Alvin Ng. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Our Laundry, Our Town, My Chinese American Life from Flushing to the Downtown Stage and Beyond. Uh, to do that, you just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do it during today's show and we will be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large and we thank you very much. And now I'm going to return to Alvin Eng, whose latest work is this book, Our Laundry, Our Town, My Chinese-American Life from Flushing to the Downtown Stage and Beyond, published by Fordham University Press. He's a a playwright, performer, educator whose plays and performances have been seen off-Broadway throughout the United States, as well as in Paris, Hong Kong, Guangzhou, China, and the author of any number of things I'll get into a few of those in just a moment. Um, How old were you when you became aware of what was happening in the pop culture? Oh, very early, um, because as long as as I can remember, there was always um, a rock band in our garage. My older older, um, siblings had played in their bands and everything. So so as as, as, as long as once I could walk, there was always a band around. So we were always aware of pop culture in that. And how did your parents react to that? They accepted it okay. They they really let them do their thing because um, we all had volume in common. And they they love to play their Cantonese opera records really loud. Mm-hmm. And as a as a child, I didn't who didn't like Cantonese opera. I learned to appreciate it since, but um, it, it really gets me. So, and I guess in some ways too, uh, I always talk about how once I got into my punk rock phase and started painting my nails black like Freddie Mercury and all all the New York dolls and everything. My mother would see these and my nails and say, ha, 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 Batman. So I think that's how she kept things in perspective. (laughs) You bought uh, a Beatles record when you were just six years old. So obviously uh, this was something that was important to you from pretty much from the start. Absolutely. And uh, and that that is true. To this day, I still don't remember how I knew to ask for it. I, but I remember specifically asking for this double A-sided single. Back then, vinyls had A and B sides, and uh, and how I knew to do that. It was, I guess, it was just in in the air in our house. Luckily, we had a lot of uh, my older brothers were rock and roll fans, and and thank you for playing Tommy. That was so great to hear. Well, that became a major part of your life. Uh, you bought the album 
uh, of uh, Tommy, and you say you were obsessed as a child with it. Why do you think you were? I think because he he couldn't find his way either and couldn't quite relate. And uh, there was just something so so deep about that, that it was such an internal journey. And I think also uh, to the to the who's credit, that was one of the first things that went away from, I I guess, you know, the, the 60s, you know, Pop machinery to that point. This came out in '68. Was a was obviously influenced by the the '50s. What these call like the '50s teeny bopper like um, industry. But they went away from just putting their pictures all over the cover and really created a deep work of art where you could indulge, not just in in the stardom of things and in the, and in the cult of personality, but in, in the story and just his isolation and inability to relate and find his way. Of course, it's much clearer now, but I couldn't articulate them. I felt like. As well, he was only a victim. Did you feel like you were a victim in any way? No, I didn't. I didn't feel that that victim side of things. I just felt the outsider side of things. And um, and of course, there was so much going on that was above my head as a six year old. But but the, uh, the the primal pull to it that he was an outsider couldn't find its way was there. Looking back, of course, there were so many other details. But that was the main thing that it was really he couldn't find his way in the outside. So it really created this rich world, this rich internal world, like a fantasy world. And I, I could relate to that where. He had a see me, feel me vortex. I would just, you know, bury my head in drawing pictures and other things. You also identified with Puyi, China's last emperor, but he'd been long out of power by the time you were born. Right, right. That came out later on, um, and um, I realized they were, they were very similar characteristics between Puyi and, and, and through Tommy. And um, I, I guess I can relate to him because. Um, of course, um, like like everyone, we we, we awakened to his story with the with the, the great nineteen eighty seven film by by Bertolucci starring John Lone and uh, and and just somehow the way he was sort of manipulated by that and and almost like the way I became, I mean, on my own tiny scale compared to Puyi, uh, the caretaker of our family. And I just remember like later on uh, when it was time after my mother had passed and I was I was trying to pack up the house. And I was just there packing up all these years, all these siblings worth of. Um, all their things left behind. Just a number of friends just said, wow, you're, you're like the last emperor. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I am. And then that led to that. And I like being somewhat but you weren't interested too. in Mao. I wasn't in, in, in a different way where um, also in the 80s, I, I made a, I had a, my first performance piece was called a, the reunion concert of big character poster. And, and in Chinese, that's a, a Dai Chi Bo. That's like a protest sign. And, and like before the internet and before uh, WeChat and all that, the distance would communicate by putting up these um, these messages of, of big character posts, like big language posts on the wall, and everyone would copy the messages. And and to me, that good, bad news would have been represented by a rock band. So I just sort of did, did a, a performance piece about that. So that was looking at the fascination of now, just looking at how just uh, his his power on things was just so, so strong. And I, I guess I, I really admired, uh, I always I admired what Mao did, like everyone in, in the first part of his life, and then... Um, but Puyi, I, I, there's something about uh, him being locked out. And also, what you talked about Tommy being manipulated. I felt mm. as an adult, I could say that both Tommy and Puyi were really manipulated so severely by the, the, uh, the adults in power around them. Did you watch Kung Fu on TV? David Carradine played the half-Chinese hero of the series. Were there no Asian actors who could have played the part at that time? Right. No, as as a child, you know, as 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 a as a child, I, I didn't know all the implications of representation and casting, and I just loved the fact that uh, Kung Fu was there. And apparently, they had passed over Bruce Lee for David Carradine for that role. 
And uh, of course, I, I didn't know that then. But it, even then, it's funny, the parallels between like uh, Puyi and Mao and, um, and uh, Kung Fu and Bruce Lee, I guess I always want, for better for us, I always took the softer route, if you will. And, uh, and I, I just love that he was a, he was a, a Chinese character on TV. Of course, again, as, as, a, as a seven-year-old, I didn't know that it was David Carradine was, was not all Chinese. And this guy was half Chinese, all the other implications. But it was just so inspiring to see that. Well, when did real Chinese stars like Bruce Lee, Chow Yun-Fat, Jet Li, and Jackie Chan come to, to serious prominence? I think not till the uh, 80s, the late 80s, uh, early 90s, because I think, and also I think what really changed all that for me was um, the rise of a independent New York cinema period, but also the rise of a independent Asian American cinema. As you know, I used to work at Asian Cinevision, and uh, that, was, that was an amazing time, the late 80s for that. Because at the same time, as I was starting to be a playwright and performer, uh, David Henry Wong's M. Butterfly was, oh, was, became the first uh, Asian American play to be on Broadway, and he was the first Asian American playwright to win a Tony, and may I add, <clears throat> the only Asian American playwright to ever win a Tony. Well, you could have seen Chinese films in Chinatown because there was a, actually a movie theater that featured them on Canal Street, but uh, that it wound up closing. Mm. No, no, there were many great old movie houses in Chinatown, and there, and there was always Chinese cinema. But then, uh, and obviously, you could always relate to the universal emotions. But then, seeing uh, Chinese. Asian American cinema really hit a strong chord with me too because the first time I was like, "Wow, they look like me." They same thing. They they can't speak Chinese or their Asian language very well, but they're so assimilated. So um, it said, it said a lot to me too. And and then it was just there was a conflict of many things going. While that was happening in the arts and cinema, you know, Flushing was so changing, and I felt like some ways I, I could laugh at it now. But let's say the first um, part of my life, I worked so hard to assimilate and. And by the time I got there, there was no there there anymore because all suddenly most people in Flushing were Asian immigrants and, and I, I was an outsider again. It was bizarre. How did you become friends with Buster Poindexter and David Johansson of the New York Dolls, which you say oh, just, changed your life? He completely changed my life. And just uh, just by being a huge fan and uh, and and. Uh, some reason I, I luckily ran, I, of course I was aware of the New York Dolls and just before his first solo album came out in 78, I somehow ran into him at a rehearsal building and, uh, and uh, he told me, hey, my album's coming out. So I, I got it and I loved it. So funky, but chic is still one of the great New York rock songs ever, one of the great songs. And, um, and on the back album of his cover, I, I, I bought a hat to try to emulate him. And I think he liked that hat. So he let me um, come backstage and talk to him. And then uh, I even became part of the show. Like when they would do their, their really punked up version of, of the Four Tops I'll be there. Uh, I would carry him on my shoulders. I would turn around and face the stage and give my glasses to my friend. And David would jump on my shoulders and I would carry him through the, uh, through the audience. And, um, and as a reward, I guess, for, for doing that, and, and, um, he changed my life by letting me interview him for the Flushing High School Forum, for my high school newspaper. And that changed everything, getting to know him and everything. So this led to your transformation into a performer, acoustic punk rock raconteur, an activist, educator, and playwright, that's a whole bunch of different things that you've done. <laughs> right, right. It was a big transition. I, I, I started first being uh, trying to emulate punk bands and everything. and um, and um But also, David was so cool with us, too. He was very, very responsible in, in a very cool way. Like, I remember saying, oh, we'd love to just drop out and go on the road. And he was having none of it. He would say, just get it over with. He was being really great in that way. And then after a while, I... I, I had more facility with words and with music, and I didn't know what to do. And then, uh, let's say, flash forward, I guess, to the to the mid-'80s, I started seeing these performance artists that were really much more um, 
for black and better term, had a, a punk rock energy and a punk rock uh, disposition to their work. And I said, oh, there's a place for this crazy commentary besides a three or even a two minute song. So that was the transition from um, punk rock circles into theater. That that was that was uh, very strong to do that. It was just an amazing time uh, in the downtown theater world and performance art world. Do you think there was an outsider sensibility at work there? Completely. Uh, we were outsiders, even within... Um, in some ways, all, all the outsiders gravitate to, to theater and the arts, and then all of a sudden, uh, the, the the popular kids that you were trying to you know find yourself to find yourself away from. Wait a minute, they're here too. So, I felt like the the downtown scene was really um, the outsider within the outsider, and it really uh, and also much more DIY. It's much more about you know, DIY, do it yourself. Like really about so much about what you have to say too, and uh, and that, and you you need that incubator place. You really just find your your voice as as any artist. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Alvin Eng, who has written a memoir called Our Laundry, Our Town, My Chinese-American Life from Flushing to the Downtown Stage and Beyond. Um, I, the reason I asked about the outsider sensibility, uh, you, uh, you're the Gung He Kid was performed at the New Eurekan Cafe in 1994. Yes, it was, and it became, um, and uh, and I remember you going to it too, and, and it became a, uh, it, it was the first um, Asian American play to be performed at the historic New Eurekan Poets Cafe. So we're honored by that, and that came about where. The Gung Hei Kid is, is a, what I call a punk rap character. And so that was also channeling the amazing spoken word artists that were around there. This is now the early 90s, the New Yorkian. And, and as it became a, a, a very uh, a good place to begin. The, again, the metaphor, like the outside metaphor, where saying uh, he wasn't quote enough, quote unquote, white enough for the rock and roll world, not quote unquote, black enough for the rap world. So where does he fit in? So we, that was like the, uh, the beginning point, the jumping off point for that piece. How many plays have have you written in all? Wow, I guess um, between I guess between fifteen to twenty. I guess. Wow, I'll, I'll, I have a list of some of them, but I didn't have the fifteen or twenty. Mm-hmm. And 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 where have you taught other than in Hong Kong? Oh, I've I've, I've taught in the CUNY system for a long time at, at BMCC. Currently at BMCC, Burbank Manhattan Community College, and in the theater program of uh, Marymount Manhattan College. But I, I I taught for a number of years down in Baltimore. I was I was a weekly commuter to Baltimore to teach at Goucher College. So a number of different places. Uh, so uh, let, let's look at some of the things that you've done. Um, you. Uh, the, you're the author and editor of the oral history play anthology Tokens with a question mark, the New York City Asian American Experience on Stage, and then uh, No Passport Press recently published Three Trees, the first of your portrait play series of historical dramas about artists. Uh, <laughs> you have, uh, what else? Uh, did you receive a, a grant for Hong Kong Handover 25 Years Later Symposium in conjunction with your acoustic punk raconteur solo show, Here Comes Johnny Yen Again, or How I Kicked Punk. So you kicked punk? I think so. <laughs> I think so. That makes an analogy where it was a, a very deep discovery, like a, with my punk rock roots, like back then, most kids in the late 70s, we all admired like this uh, this heroin chic junkie thing. Like again, no one wanted to be an addict or use, but we all wanted to act as if we were heroin chic junkies. And then I dug a little deeper and my, my, my grandfather, uh, 
died of an opium overdose. And, and that, that led me, of course, to researching the profound indelible impact of opium and the opium wars on, on China and the Chinese diaspora. And so I'm trying to reconcile these two things together in that piece. And here comes Johnny Yen again, or Howard Kick Punk. Of course, that's the first line from the great um, Iggy Pop David Bowie song, Lust for Life. And, um, and and in it, you realize, oh, God, there I, I, I thought Johnny Yen, I was like, hmm, could Johnny Yen be a, a Chinese character in, in, in this Iggy Pop David Bowie song? As, as a teenager, I thought that. But then I learned that uh, it was a lot of code for, like, China white heroin. So I'm just trying to put those things together. And uh, and for this piece, I picked up the guitar again, too. So, yes, and with, thankfully, yeah, the LMCC, Low Manhattan Cultural Council, will be doing, um, looking back, because uh, Hong Kong was to me the, the key uh, concession of the opium wars. That's how Hong Kong became a, a British colony for so many years. So looking at uh, 25 years later, where are we now that uh, the famous Hong Kong handoff was 1997. So I'm trying to look at that and we're gonna do that um, with a number of pieces I'll, I'll be performing. Here comes Johnny Yen again, I have a panel and love to get different artists in different disciplines to contribute work about where we are now with that. Well, Hong Kong right now is going through a tenuous uh, relationship with the the people in Beijing, uh, are you concerned? Yes, very, very, very concerned. Because uh, even then, when we did our workshop back in, in twenty eleven, they were very concerned that uh, that that uh, Beijing was not hearing Hong Kong's uh, needs and not not seeing to it at all. So they were very worried about it then. So yes, I'm I'm very concerned, and, and also some people say it's okay to so talk to Hong Kong, but I, I want to reach out to our students because I'm, I'm in touch with a lot of them still um, about this book. So uh, no, it, it, it is a very, um, it, it is a very uh, slippery slope time. I guess slippery slope is a, it's a mild way to put it. No, it's a very tricky time now. Absolutely. One of the, uh, the lines that has, uh, is quoted in your book from the last emperor of Flushing in China is it's been no bed of roses. So does it sound like it doesn't sound like you've had the toughest life? Oh. Well, I guess in some ways, but that that section comes where yes, that's uh, the final section is um, you know after, actually the, the title is also inspired by the great uh, Robert Frank's film Life Dances On, mm-hmm. and that and they, that came about because the actual soundtrack we had after we, the morning after we did this this piece with the Hong Kong students when Wendy and I did that piece with the Hong Kong students uh, at the celebration, I was very surprised that they put on uh, We Are the Champions. We all started dancing, so I'm just Freddie sort of from that. Yes, yes. Queen and Freddie Mercury became the sports anthem. And I just started reflecting on that I mean, in, in that circle, just thinking, wow, what would my parents have thought? So I guess the bed of roses was more like imagining what they went through so I could be there. And I guess it was no bed of roses for me. On many, yes, on many uh, comfort, on many uh, tangible ways, it's, it's been it's not it's not been a tough way. But I guess I guess to me, that was still reconciling my uh emotional relationship with my father in particular, just imagine what would he be doing now? And, and I think my relationship with my father in particular was no better for us. So that's what that refers to. And we're all dancing to the Queen song and imagining uh, what Robert Frank might do with this too. You mentioned that uh, the Dalai Lama said that uh, you're just a foreigner who looks Chinese. Oh no, that was a that was not the Dalai Lama. Oh. It was someone I imagined could be an eminence. There was a young. It was a young. After we did this, the night after, I got um, one of the greatest nights. I got to perform the Last Emperor Flushing in China. It was still one of the greatest nights of my life. And uh, and then I just went to this uh, this sort of speakeasy, and there was a, a young kid there who's had the 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 presence of a Dalai Lama. Though it was not the Dalai Lama, uh-huh. and um, he had this 
singular energy presence. He kept looking at me. And then finally he came over. And first he asked me something in Mandarin. I couldn't understand in Cantonese. And then finally in English, he bursts out saying, you're just a foreigner who looks Chinese. <laughs> and uh, I was taken right back to that classroom in Guilin. But now, you know, many years older, now I could laugh it off. But I was like, this is so weird. Leaving. So I laughed. Though. Here I, I thought I've come all this way and I have in many ways. I finally got to perform one of my works in China. And this is the reception it gets <laughs> afterwards. So I could laugh. But it was bizarre that he just... He, I hadn't felt that that weird energy like he was sussing me out like since those students in the Guilin China classroom in 1987. So, so yes, I felt like he was an eminence, but we he have, was not the. We have just a minute left. Anything you wanted to add before we go? No, I, I just really hope I, I like I said that, that. Well, thank you for having me first, and uh, I think with all these different themes, and I really think at the end of the day, it's 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 a real New York City book. I really feel like mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a story that can only be. That could have been made here in our great city. Well, that's, I don't know. Our town doesn't refer to New York City, but it does make sense there. The title of your book is Our Laundry, Our Town, My Chinese-American Life from Flushing to the Downtown Stage and Beyond. It is published by Fordham University Press, and it has been my great pleasure to have Alvin Ang as a guest on our show today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and honor. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Our Laundry, Our Town, My Chinese-American Life, From Flushing to the Downtown Stage and Beyond by Alvin Ang. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And if you do, we'll say thanks with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. But either way, uh, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI is the only station on New York radio that's 100% listener-sponsored. We need our listener support to keep ourselves alive and thriving, and we can only do it with your tax-deductible support. We are preempted tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Friday when my guest will be Oliver Millman discussing his new book, The Insect Crisis, and we'll see you then.